take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Hey guys, it's Adam. Today I'm going to forego having a show sponsor for the Decoding Excellence show. And instead of, what I'm going to do is talk about my newsletter. Head over to adamringler.com forward slash newsletter and drop your email into uh, the little input box and you'll receive what is otherwise the birch box of email newsletters. It's a collection of my weekly thoughts, my weekly musings of everything I'm finding fascinating. Check it out at adamringler.com forward slash newsletter and sign up today. It'd mean a lot. Today on the show, I am excited to be joined with Dr. Ben Jones. Dr. Jones is a professor at Leeds Beckett University, and he is also the research and innovation manager at Rugby Football League. Dr. Ben Jones joins me to discuss all things academic research, how to ask better questions. I know for me, that is something that really resonated with me and I took a a bunch of notes on in my notebook. And we start to discuss what we can do better to help sort of bridge the gap between the laboratory and the sports field. This was a really exciting conversation for me because I think we need to do a better job as practitioners, as sports scientists, as coaches, really taking what the research says and trying to apply it in a way that best fits our environment, our context, our athletes that we work with. This was a fun conversation. Dr. Jones shares a lot about his background, why he got into academia, how he approached it through the vehicle of sport, and why he ultimately chose this sort of profession. We go through this and explore his background, his journey into high-performance sport. So grab a pen and paper, grab a notebook. You're going to want to write down some of the things that he talks about. I know I certainly did. So without further ado, here is my fun conversation with Dr. Ben Jones. Ben, welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. How are you? I'm great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing really well. I know this has been what seems like months in the making as we've sort of gone back and forth, but I am absolutely stoked to finally get you on the show. This has been a show that I've been uh, been waiting for for a number of weeks and months here, so I'm just thrilled that you uh, you could make it on, man. How are things with you? Yeah, no, thank you. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to come and uh and chat around the applied sports science world, and, and it's good. We're we're all good here. We're busy. We've got lots of applied research projects going on, um, some bigger projects, some smaller projects. It's uh, it's we're in a great place at the moment, so it's exciting times. That's awesome, man. And uh, and and again, I the the whole reason I wanted to to have you on this show is because number one. I find a lot of similarities between you and I, and I've followed the work and and what you've shared and and just your the mediums of your publications uh, for for quite a while now. And with that, there's a lot of things that just really resonated with me with the materials and the things that you've curated uh, on your social feeds and elsewhere that I just wanted to pick up the phone 
and have this conversation with you and and sort of peek behind the veil and hopefully get to know you and to to allow the audience to get to know you a little bit more intimately and personally because you're phenomenal and I just want to to share that. So I'd love for for you if you could for me man to just give me kind of a give me or give the audience give all of us just sort of an update of what you've been currently up to in uh in the last couple months. So in in the last couple of months I've actually been um spent most of my time traveling I've been actually in uh Cape Town for a week with colleagues out at the University of Cape Town and then I was over presenting at the Australian Strength Conditioning Association in Australia then over to the Springs Conference in New Zealand so but that that's not a normal month um before then um I spend my time at the moment balancing my current roles which are within a university a governing body and a club which um are a great combination of roles to allow what I feel to actually make a genuine difference in in applied sports science because I think we we need to move away from dichotomies right and wrongs and and kind of real strong views of things and and for me I, I I'm in a really fortunate position that I can actually hopefully make an influence through through that work. I think what's really fascinating, and this is sort of maybe in the United States, somewhat of the disconnect that I see so much is that we have such tremendous, very clinical sports eye professionals that are doing tremendous work, quality work. And then we have the other side of the continuum, which might not be the, the farthest side of it, but on the other side is the actual practitioners. And sometimes there's this huge disconnect. And I think what is fascinating about the roles and the responsibilities that you share is that not only do you service and 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 hold this position as you know a professor and a researcher, I'd, I'd say innovator, but also you have this applied practitioner role from a head of an academy of science at, at Carnegie. So like you're 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 surfing the entire continuum, and I got to imagine that has to be really not only enjoyable, but the most optimal way of, of sort of applying, taking the laboratory, translating that into a very applied setting. Yeah, yeah. It's for me. It was the only way I could truly understand all ends of the ends of the spectrum. And I think that for me, it's I, I get frustrated daily, and it's not around why what people are doing wrong. It's the fact that what people aren't considering because they don't know and and it always goes back to whose lens are you looking at things from. And one of the reflections from my, um, from my recent, from my recent travels, where it's conference, um, when I was talking to, it was Brian and, uh, Lauren Landau from, from your side of the water. Yeah. And they also shared the view and, and it was both Brian and Lauren were talking about it. And it was trying to get away from this fact of, um, it's not about who's most right. Yeah. And actually, you you see this a lot, and you see people uh, disagreeing on detail. And actually, from a, a higher level, there's actually a real shared interest. And actually, if a, if the the journey and the mission are actually aligned correctly, we'd make so much more progress. And I think for me as well, when I sit in the middle of these, when I sit in different meetings with these different hats on, one of the big thing that always rings bells to me is. Um, just because I'm right doesn't mean you're wrong. And when you look at the same problem from different perspectives, 
every single person in that room or outside of that room or in another organization can be 100% right. But everyone can be 100% right. And actually, it just depends on what lens you're looking at it through. And and that's, for me, the one of the real kind of interests I've got at the moment. And it's around how can we genuinely join the dots on what is, in effect, networks and organizations of people who work unbelievably hard and invest so much emotionally into it um everything into their job to to make something work yet it just feels that our system at the moment if you say a system as a governing body a club and a academic institution they're so inefficient with if everybody just actually took a step back breathed slowed, slowed down and actually went back to why are we doing all this i think that it would be so much easier and more enjoyable. You know, I, I think for me too in this, and there's a lot in that 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 resonates with me, but I want to rewind the tape a little bit because I, much like yourself, you know, when you're sitting in these conversations and these meetings and you're you're hearing these different sort of disciplines talk so passionately about whether it's a, a particular problem or a different approach or a principle or a protocol, and they, they are right and everybody's right in the same room. Yeah. But rather than sort of viewing it from a specialist standpoint, it, I, I think there's a lot of strength into to being almost that 30,000 foot view and appreciating all the different approaches that everybody's bringing to the table and into the table. But I, I'd love to maybe understand a little bit greater, maybe where this idea or your philosophy or this, this, uh, this concept comes from. And I think a lot of that comes from Maybe the way that either we're raised or why we got into sport or why we found ourselves resonating in this direction because a guy as smart as you, as as brilliant as you, could have probably applied to a hundred different professional pursuits and and found success in either of them. So I'd love to maybe ask you if you could set the the, the genesis or set the story or the scene for why you got into sports i mean what what was the what was the interest what was the genesis behind your story I, so I, I started i went the traditional route from a um an undergraduate degree and i did an undergraduate degree so i was i was playing sport as a as a junior um i probably enjoyed it more than i was good at it <laughs> and then and then as i as i started to realize that i started to enjoy um, the gym side of it and going to the gym and actually genuinely you know when you when you realize that something has a genuine impact and makes a difference you become passionate and you believe in it and that was something around for me and it's as simple as just going to the gym going to the gym made me stronger um it didn't make me much bigger but it, it made <laughs> me stronger which therefore you kind of you you buy into that model and then you and then or you buy into that belief so that was my first driver to why I loved the the theory of sport. So going to an, un, un, uh, an undergraduate degree, I my goal then was to be, it was more personal training at the time. And during my undergraduate degree, I um, worked as a personal trainer. I had a, a, a small business with an end of one employee, which was me. And I did I started this at the end of my first year. And that was one of the points, actually, that that started allowing me to kind of really apply what I'd learned in the classroom 
to clients and that's you know and this is real simple stuff in terms of how long you should exercise you know do i do cardio before i do weights with my with my clients yeah and then i and then i finished my degree and i love i genuinely love personal training i was working with some brilliant people um mostly become friends and then i got that feeling of oh i'm 21 i've finished my degree i've uh I'm full. I was I was working however many hours a week as personal trainer, and I couldn't and I couldn't fit any more clients in. And then that was when I actually thought um, I'd like to go and apply this to sport. I'd like to go and see if I can make sport better. And probably at that point, I thought I was going to be more interested in um, the high performance, the one percenters, um, the fine detail. So I went back to do uh, my masters um, at university. And during my master's, I got involved with a professional club, was working with a professional club and working in the youth department. And again, probably going back to that feeling I got when I started going to the gym was the fact that you can genuinely change a youth player's um, career. Because actually with, you know, a three, four, six month training program, they look different. and. Yeah. The caveat to that is, yeah, they're going to get stronger, whatever you do. But actually, there's, there's a real nice um, – I felt a real reward from, from working working with those. And again, I finished my master's, and the jobs that I wanted to get within professional sport, um, they all said you need three years' experience. Yeah. So I felt frustrated at that time. I was working on a – a minimal part, 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 part-time basis within this professional club. So for me, I was like, well, actually, if I'm going to invest three years in building a CV and, a, and profile to work in professional sport, I want to challenge myself academically. So then I did a PhD. And I think at that point then, um, I was really interested in applying, um, applying coaching, working with people, and I would say almost the art of it, you know, the things that you don't really know why they work, but they just do and, and you enjoy it, the athlete enjoys it. Yeah. And then the flip of that was the, I'm not going to say at that point it was research, it wasn't, it was trying to increase my knowledge by reading and doing research to increase my knowledge to then try and then be better in the field. And and I suppose probably, and it was probably at the, set, at the second year of my PhD, was when you've done some um, when you've done research and you start to understand the research process much better. I was getting pushed at that point, rightly so, for depth, and it was to go and find something that was deeper in terms of knowledge. But at that point, there I got this feeling that actually, what I'm going to go and search for here isn't relevant for the real world. And I remember having this conversation with my supervisors who. Um, who probably felt quite frustrated that I was trying to almost be, I'll use the word superficial in my approach because I, I was, there was too many other things that I felt that weren't understood enough for, that I needed to understand before going to this depth. Yeah. And, you know, going through the PhD, right? So I, I went with the depths, finished my PhD and, um, and I was still working at the club at the same time. I'd got a little bit more roles and responsibilities, but you know, it was still a hands on the ground coaching an under 19 side and I finished my PhD and I went into the um, the club and the coaches you know very interested in in what I do when you wear a white coat but not really understanding it <laughs> asked me what asked, asked me what I've been doing 
so I said I've I've finished my PhD. I've um I've submitted my hundred thousand word thesis, and they said to me, "What did you find?" And my my findings were um, based on a PhD in fluid balance and sodium um, homeostasis in rugby players. I found that rugby players should drink when they're thirsty. <laughs> and at that moment, their look on the face and the feeling I got, which again, going back to probably I've obviously, you know, the examples I've used around my gym and the athletes gym, I probably crave a pat on the back every now and again. The look that they gave me, I thought, I've just ruined the academic and practice bridge here. I'm not surprising that they actually look at academics and think, you do not answer any questions that are relevant for us. You just go and find out things that you think are interesting. And at that moment then, I, I remember coaching thinking, I've got to be able to do something more helpful than that. Um, and that was that was probably one of the, the real pennies that dropped. And, and I use that story a lot lot with people in its own. And I think it's 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 nice now. Joey Eisenman, I speak to him a lot, who's obviously over your way, and and he's doing some fantastic work. And we, we always talk about you know this real applied research and these becoming more academics that are doing that in the real world. But I would still go back into a lot of um, universities and talk to people, and they're still trying to understand the why, the mechanisms, you know, the depth, and actually. It doesn't change what people are doing, so that that was that was probably my story to where I am now, which was um, which was actually I need to I need to find a way in which I feel that I can genuinely contribute within policy, which is governing body, practice, which was in a club, and knowledge, which is in a university. How I can genuinely contribute here and have a balanced view of everybody's perspectives. And I think that's probably where I am now. Man, there's just <laughs> there's so much in there that I I want to chew on and, and go down a couple different uh, rabbit holes here. And and the thing that you, you let off with is this sort of thirst for knowledge. And I, I'm just curious, what do you? I mean, was there any mentors? Was it family? Was it people that was very influential around your sort of upbringing or adolescence or? in in university i mean where do you think that thirst for knowledge that sort of seeking of wisdom or that drive for research for that sort of academia and knowledge comes from yeah it's, it's i think that's a really interesting question genuinely no one's ever <clears throat> asked me anything that i think on reflection so um i come from a, a family where you know, my dad was very successful. He was he was in finance. He was um, uh, ended up being a chairman of a company. And you know, we're not talking super super rich, but you're talking about very well. You um, comfortable. You know, we had nice holidays. Um, an older brother and a younger sister, and obviously and, and a mum as well. And I suppose that one of the things that I um, I was really passionate about was whatever I chose to do, I wanted to be good at it. Now. Um, my mum was really, and and her dad, who supported me a lot in, in the sport, they were really, really supportive of um, do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. Where my dad was probably a little bit more um, hard-nosed on, don't waste your time doing anything that's not going to go anywhere. And I think those those blend of those messages probably created a little bit of stubbornness in the fact that, being honest, I don't think my dad wanted me to go and do sport science at university because it didn't make sense to to someone like that who 
who was doing a profession where I was encouraged to um, go and do something I was interested in probably by my mum. So actually, I think that that blend of um, whether it's a thirst for knowledge or whether it's a determination to whatever I wanted, whatever I'm going to do, I want to be good at it. And I think that those two things, you know, the trying to be good at it, but also loving what you do, I think naturally probably the knowledge comes after. I don't think at any point I, I deliberately set out to become um, for the for the knowledge because I actually, if I'm completely honest, if you spoke to anyone who knew me prior to my PhD, they wouldn't have described me as an academic person. <laughs> I was I was very practical. I was very hands on. It's probably very annoying at times in the classroom, <laughs> but actually, I think that I did have this. Um, I did have this belief and this drive that I wanted to be good at it. And actually, there was there was moments when I finished my um, my masters, and I remember reflecting on this. On, I had a choice to make when you finish a masters, what career I wanted to do, whether that was sports performance or clinical. And I remember something, and I actually applied for some clinical jobs. And I remember actually turning them down, thinking that if I go into a clinical job, I'll never be as good as an, an MD, a medical doctor. Yeah. But actually, if I go into a performance job, I have all the, I have as much right ambition, um, you know, to be actually really good at what I do by just by working hard. So I suppose those are some of the the beliefs that I've applied. And actually, that's you know, this is the first time I've. I've spoken through these, but they potentially make sense to why I'm doing what I'm doing now. In episodes past, I think I shared a similar story where, you know, my father was uh, and still is um, a small business owner and and was in government. And uh, I remember a very critical turning point where in university for myself, it was, uh, you know, I, I went down sort of this business administration, economics, personal finance pathway, if you will, the first two years sort of squandering because that was what I thought uh, would make him happy, right? Like, or what would please him or what was the acceptable, you know, choice. And then, but really my, my passion was sport and athletics. And it, it, I remember a very sort of turning conversation at the, at the kitchen table where, you know, almost like I, I got not spoken permission, but like relieved of any sort of pressure that I might feel of following a particular career pathway. And, and that was sort of the turning point for me to be, uh, heads on full effort towards what is otherwise my, my passion, what I feel like my calling is. And, and, you know, you spoke so much about this time of going through and, and you, you mentioned a couple of different advisors and, and your PhD but was there anybody particularly influential mentors, advisors at that particular time that you could look back and sort of retrospection and and uh, and say maybe led you down a pathway that that you know essentially delivered you to the sort of the the I say success the to the success that you have today? Yeah, I think that one of the one of the most influential people in my whole career has been my colleague and who I work with a lot now which is Dr. Kevin Till. Um so I so my supervisors were um Professor Roderick King and Professor John O'Hara and both are um very very good academics. And I think that 
one thing that during my PhD and when you talk a lot about talk to academics during those early kind of research career, you see elements in in different people that that and, and they're, they're probably their best bits that you're like I want to steal that part. I don't want everything. I just want that part. Yeah. And you know that's in terms of you know the depth of knowledge in terms of um, how somebody writes in terms of how somebody interprets data. And then coming to the end of my PhD, um, Dr. Kevin Till had finished his um, two or three years earlier, and Kevin was Kevin was outstanding at um, turning an idea into a um, into a study and something on paper. He could go from we we would chat on, over coffee, and you'd ask a question, and he'd be like, well, "Let's do a study on it. Have you got some data?" And by the end of the week, you would have a draft manuscript um and he's kevin's phenomenal and he's like that now so i think that kevin help kevin help inspired me to actually um make things happen that way and and i think again probably you know when you speak to different academics different people and you can start then identifying what what their strengths are and and, and hopefully blending yourself on those key things I think I think then that's probably again why where I am now, which is I, I try and genuinely every person I speak to, I try and learn something from, and I think that that allows me then to almost um, clay other people's superpowers into something that's, <laughs> that's that's quite efficient. But yeah, definitely my supervisors were brilliant. But but the yeah working with Kevin and, and I still work with Kevin now. If you look at our publications, we supervise most students together and, and work together and. And he's a good friend, and, and I think he's he probably gave me the confidence of making research real and actually turning it into um, into something quite quickly, which was good. Yeah, yeah. I whether it's Kevin or or maybe somebody else, or maybe just something that you've applied in your your normal day. Um, is there any particular pieces of advice that they shared with you, or he shared, or someone else shared? that either really resonated with you or shaped the way that you approach your work today? No, I don't think so. I, I genuinely don't, I don't remember anyone ever sitting me down and, and kind of pep talking me. I think it was more um, watching people and how they work. And I think that, you know, watching, working with, with Kevin, but then also the blend of that as well, that I, that I, try, and, I try and spend time with as many different people as I can. And whatever their background and whatever work, whatever their roles, because I genuinely feel that everybody has something really special to contribute. And it and it became and spending time with different coaches, some who were very successful, some who weren't. I found it interesting when the ones who I felt were doing things better in theory were less successful than those that were doing things that were worse in theory. And that again allowed me to to probably start to collate this idea in my head around um it goes back to you know just because i'm right doesn't mean you're wrong and actually you know it's not about who's most right and and that allowed me to almost create this real balanced view of actually no one really knows what they're doing we're all navigating our way through it as we go along and we are and and every day you kind of do something that that allows you to to learn something new and and actually the people who were at the forefront of these organizations they're probably just braver than us, us below that are actually still, still not brave enough to go and do something. 
So I think that um, I think yeah. that spe- spending spending a lot of time with really good academics, with really good coaches, with really good athletes. Athletes are so driven; they're unbelievably smart. Some of them that actually, you know, athletes are really good for me because they ask what we would class as dumb questions. You know, we do something, they turn around and they go, "Why are we doing that?" And actually, there's times when you turn around and you go, <laughs> "Yeah." I don't know. Someone showed me, and I've carried on doing it ever since. And and that's and that's I, for me. That's it's it's really refreshing to be able to say, I have no idea why we do that. And and going back and, and some of those are real basic things, you know. I, I remember an athlete once, um, and and the interesting thing within the the UK, especially in rugby, is that a lot of rugby players when they're post eighteen. Um, they do sports science degrees. So they probably end up where their confidence in sports science probably overtakes their competence in the first couple of years. But that but that makes them really challenging. Yeah. You know, why are we doing that drop jump? Why are we doing a single leg or a double leg? Or why, why are you making me sit down for a jump? And it really challenges your, your, your basic principles and your philosophies to actually um, go back and make sure that you do understand why you're doing something and you're not just doing it because it looks or feels right. I love the fact that when you were discussing just that that sort of natural curve as as a person goes through sort of their professional career of those an initial early years when when confidence trumps their capability of performing the task. If there was somebody coming out of university and they are approaching whether it's, you know, they're an adjunct professor and they're just starting off and, and granted that they probably have their own mentors, but like, what, <laughs> what do you typically see? I mean, what piece of advice would you recommend for them? You know, this smart, driven, motivated young sports scientist just starting out in the field, uh, ready to embrace the world, the real world, uh, for all of the complexity that it presents uh, away from the laboratory. <laughs> what advice would you recommend for um, them? <laughs> I think that the the first thing for me is is you've got to build relationships with people. Our our industry is fantastic because we work in sports science, which is technically a science, but we work in an area which I disagree when people say it's a science. It's not. It's an art. Winning's an art. It's it's subjective. We don't know why some people do things at certain times. We can explain with science afterwards, but if you over science things I think you turn coaches off um, and I think the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to go listen um, understand why people do what they do from experience just because they don't they may not understand um, the, the 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 science the mechanisms behind it but let's just understand why they do what they do and then look at where we can contribute and actually contribution is contribution could be through um, joining the dots on lots of lots of superficial things, which could be, you know, rest recovery, nutrition, um, resistance training, or it could be on on, on some depth. And, and the depth could be, you know, if you tweak resist, if you change your resistance training program, the reps, the sets, the tempos, that actually that could could op- could help um, the performance program. But the first thing has to be understand the environment and go. Go and understand the, the person's view, their lens, and and why they're doing what they're currently doing. Because I do find it really interesting. And I and I was that person. I went into the club and I watched, and I was 
I came home and probably um, overconfident, under-competence and, and thought, well, that doesn't make sense, that's wrong. And just because I didn't understand it, thought it was wrong. And actually, you know, some of those things have changed and they probably weren't right. They weren't wrong, but they probably weren't, you know, they weren't optimal. But actually, I think we've just got to understand other people's views and lens first. And I know you've said this on a number of other sort of publications and podcasts, uh, but just discussing sort of the, the complexity of research as it relates to sport performance and and this uh, the athletic world that we live in. And I, I'd love to ask, I, I suppose, I mean, is it a challenge? Is it a problem that we, our industry, researchers, whatever, are trying to ask questions that aren't necessarily pertinent or relevant to the sport and the context of sport? Or are we trying to ask a more complex question that is what is otherwise needed? Or is it some other multitude of of problems or, or challenges? I'd, I'd love just to maybe have you expand on sort of your academic and your researcher uh, side of, of how we can make this more applicable and how we can transfer what is otherwise the, the great research that in pockets people are doing to where it matters the most, which is the, the, the pitch or the playing field or wherever. So uh, these, these probably from the highest level, I, I have um, some strong beliefs around and some strong views around this. I think that you're 100% right that the research question has to be relevant and the research question has to be relevant from um, what somebody wants to know. And if somebody wants to know something, uh, they will allow you to do it and it and it will it will help them. And I think that um, coaches, organisation, players, whoever you want to include in that practice continuum, they learn so much more through the research process than they do from the research findings. And it makes sense because you, they look at how we deal with data, how we standardise things, how we design questions. And that actually helps them make better informed decisions elsewhere. Because if, if we go back to the, the fundamental principles of research, and, and I'm, I'm talking about research in the, the broadest sense, not as an academic research now, it's, it's one question, it's well controlled, um, and we design a study to actually have our independent dependent variables in which we can then make, make meaningful conclusions from that. Now, it makes no sense in, in our industry because, and, and I use a slide for our um, for our undergraduates that I teach and also when I've delivered at conferences. And if you ask somebody who, who's played sport, who's been involved in sport, who believes, who genuinely believes that um, sport is only won by psychology, only psychology, or that it's only won by biomechanics or only won because of physiology or only won because of nutrition? And everyone will say no one, and they'll say it's a blend of all of them. So then you ask the question, why do we work in silos as disciplines in academic research? Why do we only publish in um, the majority of research published in um, uni-discipline journals? And actually, why is there so few multidisciplinary research projects going on? And the answer is because they're really hard to do. And they, if you do them, they lack depth. They have great breadth, but they lack, lack depth. So then the next question is, well why, well, why don't people just go for breadth and not depth? And the answer to that is that actually 
academic institutions are judged on their ability to contribute to knowledge. They're not, they, it's, it's looking now like they're, they are judged on their ability to, to make things happen and make things um, and have impact. But fundamentally, it's not, it's knowledge. It's who can do the most complex paper with the most complex stats, with the most complex design to actually um, find something out that we didn't know before. And, and I feel really passionate about this because, yes, I, for my academic job, I have to produce high quality scientific papers. But I'm really honest around that my highest academic scientific papers are the least useful for people who I want to use them. And, and they are like you, you can read them and people won't understand them because they don't make sense to, in the real world. And it's and it's not unique to sports science. It's you know I, I remember um, our old associate dean, who's um, a prolific researcher in her area, and she did her PhD, let's say twenty years ago, and it was on um, it was on female participation rates in PE and how females um, during school, you know, stopped doing PE because of various reasons. They still do. They still don't. They still drop out of PE. So. If they knew that 20 years ago, why have they spent so much time, and the same in our industry, telling us all the reasons why, not actually trying to make them do PE. And it's the same with obesity, with injury. You know, we know fundamentally around energy balance. We know we know so much around metabolism, yet we don't know how to implement it. And it goes from efficacy, you know, we understand the theory, to effectiveness. We're really poor at making change. You know, it, it seems like even at the university level, you know, while within athletic departments, and I, I speak of somewhat of the American system, that uh, while we are gung-ho to try to combat the sort of silo effect and really bring in a multidisciplinary approach, it seems like still the higher-ups, provosts, uh, deans, really put a high value on, obviously, the complexity and the depth of knowledge from a publication standpoint, from a contribution of knowledge standpoint. So it's it's this tail wags the dog of of chasing complexity, which never applies, chasing maybe an applied, more general approach uh, that could apply, but is of sort of little value, i.e. value with yeah. air quotations around it to the university. But even either <laughs> either or, both papers are still stuck behind academic paywalls that the you know U sixteen coach at an academy can't access unless they have you know the the funding to be able to do it. So whether it's complexity or general, there's still limitations. There's still challenges from getting this in the hands of the right people to make a real significant impact. And I'd love to just kind of turn that around from to, to you. I mean, if you could wave a wand over any sort of system. I mean, what what would be, and this is a daunting question, but what would be your steps to try to limit this and maybe get the the right information in the right hands? Yeah, hundred percent. So I'm gonna. Um, so the the best analogy I've ever ever heard anyone present, and it's Professor Evan van Hagen, who does some fantastic work in injury um, from Amsterdam. He presents the model of. Um, an old-fashioned car 50 years ago and a modern-day car, now an F1 car, and talks about that's, that's efficacy. That's making something better. It make, it's making something faster, more powerful. And then the next slide he brings up is a picture of um, uh, a bumpy, muddy road. 
and actually the bumpy muddy road the old car would have been faster than the f1 car because then actually the bumpy muddy road is is our in my opinion it's our world it's our environment at the moment and you're 100% right, the model of um, let's get academics to do academic research, publish them in academic journals that only other academics read, and then try and claim impact from it do- doesn't make sense. So my my solution or, or my, my thoughts on this are that we need to go back to um, – I think we need to re- rethink the system. And I think that one, one thing that's um, for me really interesting is the best academics – aren't the best disseminators they're brilliant at science but they're not great talking to coaches and equally some of the best coaches aren't the most patient and don't listen to uh, scientific uh, scientists talk to them in words they don't understand so let's let's let scientists be scientists and let's let coaches be coaches and let's for me let's co-fund and and join to point um research practitioners research translators who can actually genuinely make it all come to life and i'm not talking about the person that you invite in on a um a thursday afternoon when when all your coaches are finished and presents to you some means and standard deviations <laughs> i'm talking about the person that's embedded in your club half the time and actually as you're going to make your coffee in the morning says hey adam i read this study the other day that i think that it shows that if we do um if we do x and y we can improve recovery do you think that's relevant? And then actually that creates this this dialogue of, yeah, actually, I, that sounds pretty cool. What exactly was it? They go back and they understand more. And I think in sports science and, and strength and conditioning, we need to start doing what's, what's right, not just what we can do. And actually, but by understanding, you know, what the challenges are. So going back to that conversation of, you know, Adam, I found this. And you could turn around and say, yeah, that makes sense. But actually, you know, our players aren't contracted at that age, so we don't have control of their playing programs. Okay, well, I wonder whether that would work in something else. And and that two-way dialogue with that person in the middle who is genuinely the research translator from both ways and acts as a filter, for me, just makes it such a, a, a phenomenal system because I genuinely believe that you need really good scientists doing doing really good um, scientific work, publishing it in journals that other scientists can read and they can develop the knowledge. That makes complete sense. And that makes complete sense for the next generation of sports science graduates that come out, that they come out with a high level of knowledge. But let's make it quicker. Let's put somebody in the middle to actually help translate that. And, and it goes back to it's not around, you know, reading papers. It's around nudge behavior. It's around, you know, the small conversations, the genuine, you know, tell people what they need to know, what not what actually, you know, what you know and, and what the paper shows. And I think if we do that, I think that people would be more open-minded. They'd be more open-minded to studies. They become more inquisitive. They'd allow research to happen. And that, that creates this, for me, this kind of fantastic holistic ecosystem where knowledge, science, research, they're all the same thing because Basically, you know, going back to what we started talking about, why are we doing it? Well, I think we're doing it to make athletes better from a welfare, from a performance, from a, an injury, and make sport better. Well, who doesn't want to do that? Everybody does. I guess maybe my next question or thought as, as we kind of go down this hole a little bit is that you obviously have 
you know, this experience as a senior lecturer and, and being in sort of the, the classroom and mentoring as, you know, I've, I've asked you many questions about your mentors, but you serve as a very active role in mentoring many, many others. And I, I guess I'd love to maybe ask you the next question of being, you know, what, what type of advice that you think resonates or maybe in the echo chambers of Twitter or elsewhere do you hear that's being retold or retweeted or, or whatever that you think that maybe the next generation of, of people should avoid, actually? Um, great question. I, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. Do you? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, and I've always tried this thought experiment of juxtaposing these questions, turning them around and answering them. But in the last 10 years or so, it seems like there was a very big push to be specialized in, in very disciplines. And I think then you started to see, at least in America, you started to see more universities hiring people that had a both a depth of knowledge, but also a very wide breadth of different disciplines because we're sort of, I think, recognizing the fact that it takes a village to raise an athlete at this point and that the more you can cross multidisciplinary approaches and, and use evidence to lead what you're doing from a training perspective and be able to speak coach and that vernacular and that language and and to be able to talk with academic researchers and talk with physicians from a return to play or return to competition models, that the more that you can both share this sort of yin-yang, teeter-totter of depth and breadth, the more that you're going to be prepared. And I just think that we, or maybe the system here in America, because of the stringent sort of experience necessary because of a surplus of, of a labor force and people wanting to get into athletics that a lot of people continue to specialize, specialize, specialize. Uh, but oftentimes then get into a position where they're so specialized that it's, uh, you know, it, then it kind of comes to the same conversation I think we have when we're sitting around, you know, sharing a, a, a pint <laughs> with each other and we're talking about, you know, people 101 and people skills and talking and how to how, how to speak to different people and that relationships and how to form these things. And this is sort of the, you know, I, I know it's cliche, but the art and science, well, we're so invested in the science aspect that we're losing our ability to communicate. And so maybe that's at least on this given day, my response of how I would answer it. But, you know, I just know that you have people knocking on your door that's, you know, probably asking you for advice. And I, I would, I just was like, I'm sure that there had to be something, you know, that, uh, that you hear that you're like, you know, personally, I disagree with. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still, um, I'm again. I'm in a really fortunate, fortunate position that I'm now in in some roles where I have an influence. But I, I'm genuinely like I feel such a novice ninety nine percent of the time, and I'm still figuring it out. And 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 each day I, each day I come home and I and I think I've I think I've figured something out, and the next day I don't. So my advice does does vary day to day. Um, I think that I I hundred percent agree with the kind of the the 
generalists and the specialists. And I think that we're probably in a in a phase at the moment of actually the emergence of the the generalists. And I think when there's and and I'd actually probably class myself as this at the moment. And and it's I think people quite like the generalists because it because they don't overcomplicate some things. But I imagine then when people feel comfortable with generalists, they'll go back to wanting some more depth with the specialist. But I'm not sure whether, and, and I'm talking for about the UK now, that, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to go into politics now. Are you ready for this? <laughs> the, um, <laughs> it's almost that, you know, there's, a, there's an anti-expert approach sometimes. That the anti, An anti-expert, there's so many experts out there that just preach and and actually, I think people at the moment actually don't, they're not listening to the experts anymore because the experts, what they're preaching is obvious. And, and yeah, it makes it makes sense. But it goes back to my, the car analogy that I use. But actually, like, there's, there's genuine reasons why that we're all not fit and healthy, that we're all not, um, you know, we're all not active, that we're all not in, in the right way. We're all not, you know, in, in jobs and, and, and wealthy. There's reasons like that that are actually quite complex and and, and experts, um, sometimes the answers that they provide aren't realistic. So I think the advice that um, that I would have would be around, you know, try, try and get as much experience and, and as many views as you can and, and say yes to as much as you can. I, I probably say yes to too much, which is why the reality is that probably I won't be able to do these these three roles forever. Um <laughs> because I'd, I'd then have no social life um but <laughs> but it but actually that i feel at the moment i feel like i learned so much from them that that overspills into each one that that i can't say no to anything that that comes from either one um so you know so and 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 opportunities create further opportunities and you know, this is this is an example. I'm, you know, when you, you gave me that answer, I 100% agree that I learned something there that I didn't know before, and that op- you know, that's an opportunity that came from you inviting me to be on the on the podcast. So, um, yeah, I don't. I, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. There's something in that too that I I think that resonates with me, and and you said it, and I I'm just gonna go down this hole is that. For me, and my philosophies has so much been about trying to say yes to so much because I just look at it very much like your advice, right? Which is, you know, just just gain ex- gain the experience from it. You know, you're going to be better off from it. Um, and I I 100% agree with that. I think that you know, especially as you know, a person coming right out of university, you should say yes to any minuscule thing that is being offered to you, Um, whether it's, you know, experience to do this. If you want to help out in this club, you want to work in this academy, it might be the smallest role. It's the, as you said, a part, 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 part part-time position here or there that uh, you should embrace it because, yeah, opportunity begets more opportunity and you just never know what's going to come of anything. And I think this is the, the hard part as I turn this question around on you is that as you become more i don't want to say proficient but you've 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 taken on more responsibility and you've sharing this sort of three-headed monster of different roles and responsibilities and things that you have to do what have you been what have you become better at saying no to and how do you avoid the distractions or the invitations or 
just the the things that come up that maybe pulls you away from doing what is otherwise your best quality of work within those three disciplines. Yeah, I so I'm really um I only get engaged try I only try and engage in work now that I feel has a genuine impact and, and leaves a legacy on something. And and that's probably taken me away from um so I so any research project, anything that actually creates a position for somebody, anything that actually, you know, allows somebody to move into a better position, anything that actually improves the 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 running of a sport, the organization of a club, like that for me leaves a legacy because if I wasn't there tomorrow, then it's better than, than when I started. It's probably taken me away from more things like um fitness testing of athletes in terms of, you know, coaching of athletes and, and, you know, writing programs, that type of work. Um, I, I work with genuinely the, the best team ever, every single person within, um, within our team, whether they're, a, you know, a real hands on the ground S and C coach or they're, a, um, you know, a, a real hardcore scientist or any, anywhere within that continuum. I think that everybody, within the team naturally organically adopts a um a real influential role whether that's our social secretary organizing our christmas do on saturday or which keeps everyone's spirits high and actually that's gonna get everyone through this week or the people who are the good at stats and i think that without us ever sitting down and saying these are all your roles you know don't cross your swimming lanes into others People have people have found their strengths. So it actually allows people to be really efficient, and and that allows me to be efficient. So, you know, they'd if there's a, a, a testing session, if there's a session that the with that group of athletes that need covering, I know that the guys will ask me, but only when it's the last resort, and actually they've exhausted all the other coaches, and then I'll do it. Where probably two years ago, three years ago. I would have been. I would have probably wanted to to know every problem when its when its head first popped up, which was, you know, an S and C coach has got to go and do something somewhere. They can't, therefore can't make a session. And at that point, I'd be like, right, I'll do it. Where now, you know, the the, the team the team help look after that, and then, like I said, if if it can't be fixed, then they'll come and knock on my door, and, and then I can help. Yeah, that's so great. I. Uh... It kind of reminded me, you, you spoke about sort of the genesis of why you got into athletics and sort of your background and your own sort of personal journey. And what really resonated, not only in that response, but just your last response in that when you're personal training, you you have essentially 24 potential hours in a day. And if you're scheduling for an hour, you have potentially 24 lives that you can impact and change. But the challenge with that is is scalability, right? And I had a mentor of mine that, you know, really sort of expanded on expounded on me that, you know, like to to truly I don't know, I, I don't want to say be effective because those lives, those twenty-four lives would obviously be effective, but to spread or to scale perhaps your effectiveness to a larger demographic is for him and in, in, in a very sort of coach environment, he's like, I'm a coach of coaches. I want to coach you guys to coach even better so you guys can spread your ability. And I just think that's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, when you just shared what you shared, 
it's you know taking a, a very strategic approach to affect potentially policy that can then affect hundreds, if not more, people rather than the the potentially the one on one. And I think that's that's a, a, a tremendous and very efficient way of utilizing your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience and being able to scale that across an entire academy or through your research and your publications to scale it across an entire industry and exponentially allow you to affect, you know, countries and states and 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 there, you know, for much uh much more. But you you spoke about you know, obviously, this being a very sort of atypical time <laughs> in your uh, annual year with traveling and and all the various different sort of pulls that you have, and you know, I, I know that having just gotten off a plane and and feeling sort of uh, overwhelmed with the preparation of getting things together and getting prepared for this next sort of week and scheduling and just logistics, that you know, I I beg to ask you, I mean. A, do you ever feel overwhelmed or unfocused balancing or, you know, sort of juggling these various roles? And and if so, what do you do? And what's your sort of personal way that the, the, the guy behind uh, what the world knows of? I mean, what? how do you handle this and how do you regain your focus so that you can do your best work? Yeah, I don't, um, I'm probably I, – I think that the way that – so – trying to blend the three so you know a job at a university as a professor which is is leading research and and trying to drive that versus you know a support role which is a research innovation manager in a governing body versus you know what is probably in effect now a manager within a professional club there's such a range of of tasks that i need to do and um the first thing I go back to is say that I genuinely have the best jobs in the world and the blend of them are amazing. So I, I, I genuinely love what I do. But I think that these times when um the times when I do feel pretty jaded and exhausted, but actually, you know, that's the time but then at the same time one of my PhD students may send me through a paper to review and actually it's on something that I'm really interested in that I, that I want to read and I want to learn about and, and actually by reviewing that for them and, and obviously, um, you know, contributing that way, I feel like I've learned something which at that moment in time kind of inspires me to, to do work. Whereas, you know, we all know the, the admin, the paperwork, the, the things that, that we all need to do that we put up, <laughs> you know, they're the things that I, that I leave until, um, uh, that I leave until I do feel, probably more motivated to get those out of the way. So I think what I've done, what, I, what I'm good at now is um, understanding the, the task that needs to be done and when I can best do it. So for example, if I, so I travel quite a bit at the moment, if I've got um, a plane or a train on at the end of the week, I won't read anything until the end of the week. And actually, you know, I, I've got them, my reading list and when I'm on that plane or on that train, you know, I look forward to actually that quiet time where I can read and, and and get rid of that part of my to-do list, where some of the other parts of the week when, you know, it may be some more editing documents, some planning, some, you know, meeting people, which, you know, naturally we spend a lot of time doing. So I think that the, the short answer to your question is um, 
I always find something that I can do at that moment to make sure I'm always doing something productive. Um, the long answer is, uh, or the, the probably the most honest answer is, and I'm still learning, and I'm still learning around when I sit in my office for three hours and I realise I've done no work, <laughs> uh, and it's and it's late at night, and and actually, I should have just gone home. So you know, I'm, I'm still navigating that as well. Yeah, I think same with me, you know, as I'm dealing with sort of a different role is really sort of best understanding how to get my stride within the the given week and when I can sort of periodize the type of work that I want to do in sort of the cycle, the micro cycle of my my week to week and and where best to fit my reading or where best to fit my my deep work in within the week and within the coaching uh, that's required of it. And I, I, I take you as a, you know, obviously from what you shared and, and what you know, your background and this sort of deep thirst for knowledge that you, you come across as a very proficient and deep reader. And I'd just be curious, I mean, outside of the various papers, the academic sort of uh, responsibilities of having to read and edit and do, I mean, do you read for leisure? And if you do, I mean, what what may be some of your, your past favorite books or books that you've gifted or, or really resonate with you today? I mean, what are, what are some of those favorites and what are you currently reading? The answer, the answer is, uh, <laughs> the answer, it should be yes, but the answer is actually no. I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really, I, I don't do enough of that, that work. And it goes back to the, um, goes back to my, my legacy comment around early around doing something for a legacy. And I feel that if I'm doing that, I'm not actually, I know that long term it's, it should be making things better, but I'm, but I prefer to be. I have that many papers from you know co-authors and collaborators yeah. that I need to be working on, or, or when I get ideas. The only two, um, the two books that that I read recently that I loved. One was Start with Why, the Simon Sinek book, um, which you know again it, it it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, it's a great book, and um, we've we've worked on a research paper that's. That goes back to asking the right research question. Actually, if you, we start with why we're doing it in the first place, so hopefully that's going to be submitted for review soon. Um, and then the other book which I would recommend is *The End of Average*, um, which is a it's a nice, thought-provoking, you know, challenging our conceptions around um, yeah, our, our conceptions around things. But you know, there's 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 always times, you know, so I supervise a lot of PhD students when a thesis will come in and, um, you know, there'll be some drafts to read. So I do, being honest, I do struggle at times reading anything that's not worth work related. Even when on holiday, my, my holidays are, uh, I, I can, I'm, I'm really happy to go and sit on a holiday and, and be on a beach and, and read someone's thesis because I enjoy reading it and, and it's and it's different, but I probably spend less time reading um, other things than I should. Yeah, I think you you know when you talk about leaving a legacy, that is something that resonates with me because I, you know, given on a given day it sort of fluctuates, but the internal battle, the strife that I have is uh, consuming versus creating, and a lot of the times, you know, there's this battle while I'm consuming something. Uh, I'm, I, I wrestle with the idea of maybe, maybe I should be creating instead and, and really trying to help rather than, you know, selfishly reading. And, and I go back and forth and, uh, you know, you ask me tomorrow and I might be somewhere different. So I'm, 
I, uh, that's something I'm, I'm continuing to struggle with, but I, it definitely resonates when you say that, that I, I could see exactly the vantage point, the perspective that you're sharing. Well, Hey, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know this is sort of a wide ranging show, but the, the whole idea of this is to really ask questions, to be able to, to get to know you and to really share maybe some of the commonalities and the similarities that, that we all have in a profession and, and to draw out maybe some of the nuances and the personalities and the things that, that people might, might not know about you. And I just, I really, really respect you. And I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. It, it, is there, if somebody had a question and they're maybe wanted to, to formulate better questions and they're going through the academic system and they're researching and they're just about ready to do it. And they just needed that last little push of, you know, should I pursue this? Should I go down a different route? I mean, is there a a best way for the audience to reach out to you and ask you a question? Is there a preferred medium for them to contact you? Yeah, my my preferred probably first go-to is probably through Twitter, which is at 23BenJones. And then usually if it's... um, requires more more time or, or thought i usually just give out my you know my number my skype or my email then we can follow it up further but i would say as a, a first part of call i would i would recommend twitter absolutely okay I, and I'll, I'll make sure to include your your twitter handle in the show notes so that if somebody has uh, the drive to reach out uh, that they have the ability to. But I would also recommend if you're not following uh, you already, uh, then shame on you because you are a great curator and uh, and a great not only researcher and lecturer and coach, but you do a really great service for the industry and for all of us, whether you're you know overseas or wherever you're at. I think Quality information is quality, and it is through social media and some of these other mediums that we can help transfer what is otherwise being done at one academy, at one club, and have an even greater influence uh, to to the world of sports. So, Ben, I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the Decoding Excellence show. I, I appreciate your time, and I, I look forward to chatting with you here again soon. Thanks, Adam, and, and thank you for the invite. It's been great, and I've probably learned more than you on uh, when actually answering the questions. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. I look forward to next time. Thank you. Well, thank you. I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Ben Jones, for coming on the Decoding Excellence show and sharing his wisdom and his experience and the lessons that he has learned over the course of his career building through sport, through academia, from holding a variety of different high-performance positions, including his academic position as a professor at Leeds Beckett University and also as a research and innovation manager at Rugby Football League. I took a lot away from this fun conversation with Ben, just from his process as he goes through the research cycle and how he formulates better questions and really sorts to try to dive deeper into finding what sort of questions actually hold some relevancy and how we can best apply what is otherwise the laboratory to the context of the playing pitch or competitive arena. 
then goes ahead to share some of the best pieces of advice that he received from some of the mentors through his not only athletic career, but through his academic journey. And this was just a fun, wide-ranging conversation. So if you've taken anything away from this discussion with uh, Dr. Jones and I, I would highly advise you, please log on to iTunes and navigate over the Decoding Excellence show and leave us a five-star review. This is our way of just simply moving through the ecosystem that is the Apple iTunes charts, and it allows for other practitioners, coaches, and sports scientists and researchers to find the show. And the more that people can find the show and listen to uh, incredible guests like Dr. Jones and some of the many, many, many others that we've had on the show already, the more that we can share this information and share the wisdom and share the lessons that all of these great practitioners and researchers have shared. So please log on to iTunes, check us out and leave us a five-star review that would certainly help us and uh, would help again, spread the information to other coaches that haven't yet found this show. Hey, everybody, I wanted to remind you that today I'm sending out my weekly newsletter. And what this newsletter consists of is just a couple sentences, a few paragraphs that is describing some of my favorite things, some of the things I've been finding interesting online. could be research. It could be things I'm exploring, books I'm reading, things I'm listening to. I think you're going to get a lot of value out of it. It won't spam your inbox. It comes out once a week. And it's a great way to stay connected into the world of what I'm thinking and what I'm exploring. So head over to adamringler.com, pop in your email, and you'll begin receiving the weekly newsletter immediately. And if you haven't already, please pop over to facebook.com, start to follow Adam Ringler, where you'll receive any of the updates and the latest podcast and Decoding Excellence show materials online. So check it out at facebook.com forward slash Adam Ringler.